Hello and welcome to another episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics, the podcast from the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. This episode features guests Dr. Karen Kelly Blake, Associate Professor here in the Center, and Dr. Masahito Jimbo, Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at University of Michigan Medical School. Drs. Kelly Blake and Jimbo discussed their NIH-funded study known as DATES, which addressed shared decision-making, decision aids, and patient-physician communication regarding colorectal cancer screening. The two researchers provide insight into the study and its results, also reflecting on what the process of shared decision-making means to them in the present day. So hello, I am Dr. Karen Kelly Blake, Associate Professor in the Center for Ethics and the Department of Medicine here in the College of Human Medicine. Hello, I'm Dr. Masahito or Mas Jimbo. I'm a professor of family medicine and urology at University of Michigan. I'm also the chief of the University Family Medicine Inpatient Service and director of faculty development for the department. Well, welcome Mas and thank you so much for joining me today. We are going to discuss our research collaboration. You and I have been working together for a number of years in the area of shared decision making. Mm -hmm. And most recently, we have completed a project that goes by the acronym of DATES. If you would, tell our audience what DATES is and sort of how you came about thinking about that and the rationale for the project. Sure. So just briefly about my background, I'm, I'm bicultural, I'm bilingual. I'm originally from Japan, but grew up uh, in the United States. So communication, how to effectively communicate has always been an interest of mine. And uh, since I became a family physician, you know, that interest gravitated toward uh, patient-physician communication. And what can we do to improve that? Because I, I do feel that improving the communication between the patients and their providers or clinicians would uh, lead to not just better uh, agreement uh, between the patient and their uh, physician, but also, you know, uh, better health outcome through uh, better adherence to whatever testing or other treatment that's uh, recommended by the uh, physician. So my uh, project dates, or it's called uh, Decision Aid to Technologically Enhanced Shared Decision Making. Uh, this came up from uh, my from these interests. One was regarding patient-physician communication, and the other was I was I was always interested in cancer screening, and it kind of came about because it, it kind of became a nice interface between communication and health outcomes because uh, when I was uh, doing some research into Japanese healthcare, uh, when I was uh, doing my Master of Public Health uh, training at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I noted that the although Japan has one of the highest health, you know, uh, one of the best health outcomes in the world in terms of longevity um, and uh, neonatal death rates and whatnot, and having a, a universal health insurance and very low illiteracy and very developed public health infrastructure, there are cancer screening, for example, cervical cancer, breast cancer colorectal cancer, and in case of Japan, stomach cancer, screening rates were very low, like in the 20 to 30%. Mm. 
United States with, you know, despite all the problems we have, you know, the uh, cervical cancer screening rate is now about 80%. Um, breast cancer is 70%, and colorectal cancer is also uh, above 60%, approaching 70%. So I really started to wonder why is this discrepancy, despite all the infrastructure and, uh, you know, the, uh, that's available. And that's how I got uh, really interested in how does uh, not just the culture, but the um, modes and uh, effectiveness or communication relate to these changes. And then uh, once I started to think about what I could do to contribute to this research, I turned towards uh, colorectal cancer screening because it is the cancer screening that is universally recommended to men and women mm -hmm. of average risk at ages, you know, 50 years and over. And if you have higher risk, such, such as positive family history, you start even earlier. And uh, it was in the United States uh, and other countries also, but compared to uh, for example, breast and uh, cervical cancer screening, it still suffered from uh, lower screening rates. And then I was looking into, so what could be um, an effective way that to, to help uh, patients and physicians communicate about the screening issue and then, uh, you know, lead to uh, better decision-making and satisfaction and uh, obviously uh, better uh, screening adherence. Mm -hmm. And colorectal cancer not only was it uh, universally recommended uh, screening test for uh, you know for common cancer, uh, it was also unique in that for average risk patients it had uh, more than one screening test that is felt to be equally viable, you know, uh, and typically it would be a stool blood test once uh, once a year, or um, uh, endoscopic uh, screening, you know, and most commonly colonoscopy uh, every 10 years. Although there are other modalities like flexible simulidoscopy and um, varium enema or CT colonography, those modalities are used much less commonly. So it's usually still blood test or colonoscopy. But the important issue here is uh, there are more than one test option available. Let's say as opposed to breast cancer screening, which is mammogram. Mm -hmm. and cervical cancer screening, which is a little bit more complicated these days, but you know, it, it was pretty much like a, a pap smear. And now, you know, HPV testing as well. But um, so I focused on the colorectal cancer screening and I wanted to see, so with uh, not just whether the decision to, to be screened or not, but then the decision to which test to choose if you're average risk. Of course, if you're at increased risk, you have to do colonoscopy. What uh, effective communication would occur between the physician and the patient to, you know, uh, maximize the patient understanding, uh, clarify the patient's choice regarding which test that they would like to take, and ultimately uh, lead to their actually undergoing the screening test, whichever the one that they chose. And you know, another thing that I know from being a family physician is that uh, we, uh, we have multiple the things to deal with in a visit, uh, you know, uh, for example, in this, you know, study that uh, I'm about to uh, explain a little bit more, we did find out from over 500 transcripts uh, of the patient physician visits that, um, you know, physicians and patients may address anywhere from as few as three to maybe more than 20 issues. Yes. Over their visits. So 
it's you know it's going it's very difficult for physicians to explain everything about you know colorectal cancer screening test even though it is an important screening in the course of a visit which can be typically limited to 15 to 20 minutes and also we know that uh, physicians uh, we physicians aren't necessarily that skilled uh, regarding this concept of shared decision making where you know uh, physicians we bring our own experience values and expertise and the patients bring their own uh, experience and values and we discuss these issues together to come with, come out with uh, an option that best matches the uh, patient's preference and values and this is shared decision making is felt to be an important way to communicate when uh, there's more than one option available in either a test or treatment so um, I focus on that, and I also focus on a tool called DecisionAid, uh, which can be web-based, which can be paper, which can be interactive or not. And DecisionAid is basically a tool to help patients understand better what the uh, choices are, what the pros and cons are, and help uh, them you know, increase their knowledge about them, but also clarify their preference about uh, the particular option that uh, they need to choose from. So uh, in my trial, which was uh, funded by the National Cancer Institute, and which, uh, Karen, you were a co-investigator, well, we, we did a comparative effectiveness trial. Basically, I think from the prior uh, studies, we did feel that the decision aid has already shown some evidence in um, increasing the colorectal cancer screening rate. What I wanted to see was, can um, a decision aid that's interactive in that it's tailored toward patient's risk and the patient's preference, so it's kind of a more of a super duper type of decision aid, can that uh, bring about a better outcome compared to more of a standard decision aid where you know, it has everything in place similar to the interactive one, but the patient doesn't really can't go through an interactive tool to determine whether they're at increased risk of colorectal cancer screening or to determine what kind of values they have that would gravitate them toward one test or the other, namely stool blood test or um, colonoscopy. So uh, we did this trial in uh, Southeast Michigan. Uh, we worked with uh, three uh, university uh, primary care practices and uh, 12 uh, private uh, primary care practices, you know, ranging in size from solo practices to group practice. Total of over um, 50 physicians involved in the study. And then we basically uh, ran, had, had these uh, patients who were already established with each practice randomized to either this interactive decision aid or to this uh, otherwise non-interactive but otherwise comparable decision aid. And uh, we had about 300 patients per each arm to uh, then, you know, look at multiple time points to collect data uh, just before uh, they're randomized, right after they uh, undergo through the decision aid. Then uh, this, uh, by the way, this decision aid was administered right before the patients mm -hmm. actually came to the physician's office for their routine visit, either a checkup or a chronic care visit. Um, and Moss, if I can stop you right there, we should also sure. let people know at that point where they <clears throat> engaged with the decision aid, they were also given a summary of what they chose after going through that decision aid 
And that was to be a prompt for the physician and the patient to have a discussion about that screening decision once they entered the um, clinical visit room. Right. Good, good point. Because uh, we, although this decision aid was targeting the patients uh, by using this, um, in, uh, this tailored summary sheet, which actually for, uh, summarized the patient's risk and the uh, preference and what the patients ultimately chose, the physicians uh, could be prompted or activated for a meaningful shared decision-making discussion as well. Yes, thank you for reminding me. And, you know, after they underwent the decision aid, they underwent another survey, then they, they saw their physician, uh, which visit was completely audio recorded, uh, consented, of course. And then after the visit, the patient received another survey. And that was it for the patients for that day. And then six months after the visit, we um, reviewed, audited the chart to see whether they had undergone uh, colorectal cancer screening and whether that uh, testing matched um, the patient's uh, preferred choice at the time of the visit. So that was the gist of the study. Mm -hmm. And so you and I labored through over 500 transcripts. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, to we measure did. shared decision making. And lo and behold, Moss, what did we find? Yeah, so, you know, um, uh, you know yes, you know, f first of all, the target was 600 patients. I think we hit the target of 585 and we thought that was fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the study was actually powered to, you know, detect the difference at about 450. And then, you know, of course, not all transcripts were, you know, readable or uh, useful, but Correct. we were I think, able to get about 550 transcripts. But what we uh, did notice was that, uh, well, number one, it didn't matter whether the decision aid was tailored or not. You know, uh, whether the decision aid was tailored or standard, it basically led to the same uh, rate of colorectal cancer uh, screening at the end of one year, about uh, six months, about 40%. We were, uh, although we didn't have a usual care group, we were fortunate enough to have uh, a, a group that, that we call quasi-usual care uh, these were patients matched demographically, um, but uh, didn't uh, participate in the study. And we were able to obtain that for the three university practices because I was an employee and I was able to obtain the data through the IRB. And uh, that care group, uh, without any decision aid, it was 18%. So we know that the decision aid did have an impact. But um, again, if the decision aid was done um, uh, done in an easy, uh, you know, done in an easy to weigh uh, method. Um, it didn't have to be interactive. It didn't have to really uh, help the pay, you know, help to tailor to the patient's risk or the preference. The patients were able to kind of figure out that out on their own, I think, and able to come up with um, similar knowledge, similar positive attitude toward colorectal cancer screening, uh, similar uh, preference or clarification of preference regarding which test they want to use, and ultimately a similar uh, screening rate for colorectal cancer. And we also noticed that there's really no difference in shared decision-making uh, between uh, either decision aid. And also, yes. uh, we looked further into, you know, whether the uh, shared decision-making impacted the, you know, their uh, intent to get screened or further clarified their preference regarding the test option or whether it actually led to 
um, higher colorectal cancer screening rate. And so we basically pulled the both arms and we just simply looked at the correlation between these endpoints and uh, the degree of shared decision-making that occurred during the visit as measured by this uh, tool called Option 12, which a developer uh, was a consultant, Dr. Mm -hmm. Owen was a consultant to our team. And this Option 12 is probably the most widely used and validated tool uh, to measure shared decision-making. Although one limitation of this tool is that it looks strictly at the um, physician performance of shared decision-making and not that of the patient. But uh, we looked at all those correlations and we really didn't see anything. You know, so, uh, well, we, we did notice that, for example, there is racial difference between uh, in, in terms of shared decision-making. I think uh, we did see that uh, for, you know, African-Americans compared to Caucasians, the uh, shared decision-making uh, was lower. Yes, which we've seen before in the literature where they've shown yes. that's sort of a standard thing, that right. the communication that occurs between <clears throat> black patients and their doctors is at a lower rate and I think lesser quality than what happens between white patients and their physicians. Right, uh, which was actually very interesting because uh, one a unique piece from our study from the baseline survey that we obtained was that the, uh, the blacks actually had higher intent and higher self-efficacy. That is, uh, uh, thought that they're actually able to do it. Those, uh, they scored higher in those attributes uh, at baseline compared to whites. Mm -hmm. but, um, so they were actually better informed, better engaged at the baseline um, than the white patients. And everything else was pretty much equal demographically. And then, you know, the, this, uh, the shared decision-making uh, by their doctors, uh, it was scored lower during the visit. And, and also, um, when we uh, actually look at the uh, colon rectal cancer screening rate between the two uh, racial groups, uh, blacks and whites, blacks did uh, uh, undergo screening at a lower rate than whites. So and, Yeah, and it's hard for us, I think, to be able to expand on why that might be for our particular study. But we do know in the literature, oftentimes they do talk about different social determinants. That, that that's right. That's lower right. screening rates and those sort yeah. of lower adherence rates to whatever screening may have been recommended. That, that's correct, because although the shared decision-making was lower, interestingly, the, um, the Blacks still had about equal uh, or if not higher intent to undergo colorectal cancer screening at the end of the visit. Uh, mm -hmm. So they were still motivated, but something happened between the visit and the actual screening because uh, they were not able to do it at, at a, as, as high of a rate as the, uh, the, the whites. And this is probably has to do with access and uh, other uh, social um, economic factors that our study didn't address. Correct. But, uh, more importantly, I think our study was important, a negative study in, in that, you know, the shared decision-making didn't really have that much of a contribution to the other aspects of, you know, uh, intent or preference clarification or the actual behavior of colorectal cancer screening. Because, you know, there's an assumption, I think, uh, going on, particularly with uh, policymakers of, uh, that, uh, who expound shared decision-making that, 
that that it is good that it does lead to better health outcome and it does lead to better health which but well, when you look carefully at the literature and uh, one of my um, previous co-investigators Jennifer Elston Lafada and her group uh, had a very nice uh, review about that um, about four or five years ago that a shared decision making doesn't necessarily lead to better behavior or even possibly better um, social cognitive changes. Yes. We, we so, know that it, mm-hmm. yes. I'm sorry, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, we know that uh, shared decision making and, and also decision aid, which is supposed to help with shared decision making, you know, do lead to increased knowledge and maybe satisfaction about the decision. But other than those subjective factors, uh, when you look at more the objective outcomes, you know, there's not as much positive impact as we thought that we were going to see. Yes. So for those of us who are engaged in shared decision-making, we are engaged in patient-physician communication and how we need to improve that and understand that those are key significant skills and also understanding that really at its base, shared decision-making is an ideal. And it is an ethical ideal, I think, because it is important for those discussions to take place. But then at its base as well, what we're trying to think about is how do we know that a decision, one, is truly shared, and how are we measuring, and what are we measuring when we say we're measuring shared decision-making? Because in many instances, the tools that we're using are not factoring in a relationship dynamic. We're not looking at length of, the length of time a patient and physician have been engaged in a dyadic relationship. We're not looking at the quality of that relationship. How then are we talking about shared decision-making if we're not also considering the relational component of shared decision-making? That's very true because shared decision-making, most of the measurement tools are transactional. They only look at that particular certain behaviors during that particular time that it was measured. You know, for example, were the, uh, were the patients told that there were options available? You know, were they told which options were available? You know, what, what does the pros and cons of each uh, option and yada, yada. Now, the issue there is that, yeah, we measured the shared decision-making, quote-unquote, for that particular visit, but we didn't really measure anything for what happened before that. We don't know what kind of conversation has been going on prior to that. You know, maybe uh, there has been some discussion uh, ongoing already, and uh, and so by the time that, uh, even without the decision aid, or maybe, you know, help with some decision aid, that the, uh, if the patient had firmed up their preference or decision about uh, the, in our case, colorectal cancer screening, the physician already kind of intuitively knew, okay, that from their previous discussion, that that's what the patient wants. And, you know, there doesn't need to be much conversation regarding shared decision-making at that time. The physician can say, okay, you, you have your decision. You made your decision. That's fine. That's okay. I support that. And let's go ahead and get that done because we the measurement is very uh, is very transactional we only look at the quantity of what's been discussed and then the actual the quality of even though 
not many things like options or pros and cons were you know rehashed again at the time time of the visit mm -hmm. the quality of the actual agreement between the physician and patient may be higher and that's something that we may miss with our current measurement tools so for something like colorectal cancer screening where there are several options and historically we have talked about shared decision making as being ideal being ideally situated for decisions that are preference sensitive. And I think colorectal right. cancer screening would be one of those preference sensitive decisions because you're really making the decision between a stool blood test or colonoscopy. And colonoscopy right. is really considered the gold standard and particularly for patients who are at higher risk. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, if I'm misremembering this, and dates, and while we were going through the transcripts, we found that physicians oftentimes would recommend colonoscopy, even for those patients who were average risk, because for them, it was the gold standard, and they right. felt that this was the way to know for sure, to know definitively, so why even consider a stool right. blood test when you can go straight to what's going to give you that definitive answer? Yes. Um, well, for many physicians, shared decision-making is actually not necessarily what the word entails, but actually persuasion. So uh, not to really come to an agreement where both may agree, but for the patient to agree to what the physician recommends. So, uh, so uh, and there's some study to back that up. I mean, one is regarding, you know, the physician. Uh, there have been other studies that show that even though average risk patients should benefit equally from colonoscopy or stool blood test, physicians in, um, invariably recommended colonoscopy. Yes. Uh, we also know that for the U.S. You know, Preventive Services Task Force, they have various uh, tests uh, or other things that are uh, recommended like A through, um, A, A through D. And A and B are the ones that are either strongly recommended or recommended to undergo. Mm -hmm. And C uh, is uh, actually kind of equivocal. It can go either way, but may consider I is indeterminate where, you know, there's really no data. And D is like, don't do it. And so when you think about it, those recommendations C and I are the ones where the shared decision making should impact the most because we don't know how much data you know mm -hmm. but the physicians actually feel that those recommended a and b are the ones that where they should really discuss in terms of quote-unquote shared decision making which when you think about it doesn't really make sense because a and b are already strongly or recommended yeah so you know so again i think it comes to the physician's perception of shared decision making as more of a persuasion uh, rather than um, than through shared decision making, and another piece, you know, what, what we found in our transcripts is that, uh, for example, you know, the uh, the doctor might be talking about colorectal cancer screening with the patient, but then the um, the topic will move to hypertension, you know, the management patient doesn't really like their medication currently, and then the doctor starts talking about other medications available. So that's also discussing options and shared decision making. And maybe the patient may complain of pain where they kind of talk about options like, you know, Tylenol or non-steroidal stuff like um, Advil or even maybe uh, opioid. And again, discussing options. And then if the patient has depression, they might talk about 
you know, treatment by therapy or treatment by medication, if medication, what medication. So there's really lots of different topics that entail options and therefore shared decision making. And so when, again, we found in our transcripts that uh, there can be anywhere from three to like over 20 different topics that, uh, that have been discussed. And if you're going to try to do shared decision making for all of them, you can't really do it. And what are the really important topics to where shared yes. decision-making could be really important? You know, for example, uh, patients with early prostate cancer where um, not doing any, anything treatment-wise but following closely through active surveillance or radiation or actual surgery. I mean, so those are the options that, you know, should be discussed in a, a shared decision-making manner and where the patient would likely be very engaged because, you know, well, they have cancer. Mm -hmm. um, that, like, a same degree of importance, uh, for example, uh, even, like, with colorectal cancer screening. I'm always, you know, kind of chide a profession when I know that the physicians always recommend colonoscopy. But, you know, if, the, if some, and some patients are fine with it, you know, they're not given the option, they just go ahead and do it. If they do it, is it, you know, I mean, it, was it bad that they weren't offered the stool blood test? You know, but if there wasn't that time to discuss that, mm -hmm. you know, and if there were other issues like selecting an appropriate blood pressure medication that may be more important in terms of shared decision making, can we fault the position? I mean, those are things that we need to think about. You know, when is should the shared decision making, when is it really important? Yeah. And in some ways, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, Moss. And one of the things that I struggle with is what is shared decision making? Because it goes back to what you were saying about it being transactional, it being about persuasion. Mm -hmm. My question is always, if we're talking about shared decision making, how do we know that a decision is actually shared? At what point in a conversation with the patient do we know that has occurred? And I guess I want to kind of go back a little bit and let people know that in dates, although we sort of primed the patient by exposing them to the interactive decision aid, we didn't do any type of prime for the physician. So the physicians right. were just really acting as they normally do without exactly. any um, training or any kind of education or any kind of skill building around shared decision making. And so it would be unfair for us to say, well, we didn't find any shared decision-making in the transcripts, which we didn't for the most part, mm -hmm. without also saying that we didn't necessarily prime the physicians to, to let them know that this is something they should be actively engaging in. And you and I have talked about this. Yeah. Maybe at nauseum about the fact that <laughs> yes. you can't really just prime one part of the dyad. You have right. to look at the dyad. Right. Yes. Whole. Yes. Right. I mean, the physicians were given kind of like a summary sheet, but that's all. Correct. Uh, otherwise, nothing. And also, it's important to note that, yes, you know, the overall score of the physicians regarding shared decision making was, you know, quite poor. Correct. Uh, of, out of uh, 100 possible points, you know, the average was around 10 to 12, you know, which is obviously very low. But interestingly, when you look at other data regarding the use of option 12, you know, it's the typical scores between 10 and maybe 25 at the most. And 
uh, there was a, a very interesting study that looked at um, shared decision-making in lung cancer screening, where there's now a policy that the shared decision-making has to occur uh, with lung, can lung cancer. Uh -huh. But uh, the authors of the study actually uh, reviewed the transcripts and they scored the shared decision-making based on the same tool, option 12, and the average score was six out of 100. So wow. actually, our physicians did better than that. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Physicians in that study. So uh, when you think about that, you know, we maybe the shared decision-making that was done was so uh, low that, you know, that a little bit of improvement from really, really low to maybe just a little bit low, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like improvement in two points out of possible 100, the, maybe the effect size was too small to have a meaningful difference. You know, if the shared, you know, if the shared decision-making occurred, let's say went from like 20 out of 100 to let's say 50, maybe we may have, you know, seen some impact. But again, it's important to note that the measurement tool only looked at the transactional, mm -hmm. uh, you know, measures in that one particular visit only. So we actually don't know whether that is the right way to measure, you know, the, um, the actual decision-making process that occurs between the physician and the patient. And sometimes I wonder if in trying to measure shared decision-making, if somehow we as researchers, haven't manifested this sort of shared decision-making ideal that's really unreachable, unattainable, and untenable. This idea that it's got to follow these certain sort of rules, these things have to happen. You know, I'm at the point in my career where I'm just like, I'm just okay with some good enough conversation at this point. <laughs> if I can get yeah. a physician and a patient to have some sort of conversation about what are the options, what are maybe some potential side effects, you know, mm -hmm. what are the goals for the patient. I mean, if they can just do that for me, I think I'm going to have to be okay with that because I can't continue to see shared decision-making as some sort of fantastical unicorn that's going to pop up in the visit room and magic is going to happen. I just don't think that's going to happen. And I'm pretty much, I think I'm done with that. You're, you're right. I mean, I think over the course of the study, I kind of transitioned from a shared decision-making true believer to a shared decision-making skeptic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that's true. And also, um, I think the shared, interesting thing about shared decision-making, I think it is kind of Eurocentric. Yes. Very individualistic one-on-one. Um, really kind of um, discounts the involvement of the family. And also, what's interesting is when I speak to some of the research on shared decision-making, I don't see much difference between what they consider as ideal shared decision-making versus informed choice, where the patient get, does all the choice-making. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about, well, it's actually physician also making some recommendation, right? They say, no, it's like, you know, the patient has to drive all the decisions, which I, I don't think that's necessarily true. And the, the other piece is, you know, uh, when, when we look at the patient's preference for decision-making, we know that, yeah, most patients either like to make decisions on their own or, you know, with consultation with their doctor. They mm -hmm. decision. But we do know that um, some patients really want to have 
maybe equal contribution with the doctor or you know after they you know discuss they want the doctor to make the decision or some small percentage patients actually want the doctor to make the decision you know if that's the preference that they started from is and that's what their value is is forcing them to really you know kind of make an active decision is that for the patient's benefit that's sometimes something that i kind of struggle with especially when i think about how cultural differences may contribute to how much patients may want to be involved in the decision making process and this is actually kind of tricky and uh, it could be a slippery slope in a way because you know we do know that the more informed the patients, absolutely, the more active they want to be involved in the decision making. So we want to make sure that their, you know, preference for who wants to, who makes the decision, is is derived from being there fully informed about it, but they still want somebody else to make the decision versus they are not fully informed, so thus they don't want to make the decision. I think we need to make that distinction. That's right. And we do need to, I think, engage patients. But I think at the very beginning, we have to make sure that the people who are involved in making the decision, the physician, the patient, whoever's important to the patient that they want yes. to bring into the decision-making process, yes. there has to be an understanding that first, there's a decision to be made. I think oftentimes right. people are not even clear about that at the very beginning, we are going to make a decision about what blood pressure medication is mm -hmm. going to work best for you based on the different side effects that are possible, your work schedule, mm -hmm. what you are willing to tolerate and what you are not willing right. to tolerate. And I think oftentimes you're right with shared decision making. In some ways, what's happened is that we have given patient autonomy the super duper level of centrality that yes. the idea that the physician actually has something to add to the discussion and can be involved in making some recommendations has gotten lost some kind of way. And I remember in grad school and while working on my dissertation, which had to do with benign prostate disease and healthcare decision making. I remember writing in my dissertation, you know, the idea that someone doesn't want to make a decision, they're like, doc, I need you to tell me what to do and I'm gonna do it. Making that decision is in itself a decision. And that's right. okay. It's almost yeah. as if we've forgotten that the decision to not make the decision is a decision right. that can be acceptable. Yes. And you know, an important part to that is also, it's always the continuum. And Correct. that's where the relationship and continuity becomes important because, you know, a patient may decide to have the doctor make the decision and then we come to a, you know, treatment decision. And then, you know, if that medication didn't have the desired effect or some side effect or something, then maybe the patient might be more motivated to make, you know, make greater contribution to the decision-making process at the next visit. So they might say, well, you know, um, I asked you to make a recommendation and you recommended this and I did that. I had some problems with it. Um, now I want to know more about other options and I want to you know, be kind of more involved in which one to, you know, to choose. So, you know, again, depending on the visit and depending on what happened based on the previous decision, mm -hmm. the patient's, you know, kind of desire to 
um, contribute to the decision making might change. Correct. So I, I think those, and that's where the relationship and continuity becomes important. And I think, and that's what makes shared decision making and the whole decision making um, science uh, fascinating and but difficult to try to measure and difficult to figure out what is good and what is not so good. Absolutely. And I do think that's what's, what's missing, the fact that it is a continuum. It is a process. I think oftentimes people think about shared decision making yes. as the standalone moment in time right. discussing this one thing. You know, going back to the example I was trying to make about blood pressure medication, of course you're going to make a decision about a particular blood pressure medication at that one point. But we're talking about somebody who's got a chronic disease. So it's going to happen over a continuum of time. How are you going to manage hypertension for this patient? So shared decision-making becomes a process over an established relationship over a length of time. And it is not a standalone moment. That's right. So, Moss, I think it's time for us to end this very okay. fascinating and wonderful conversation. Of course, you and I talk about these things That's offline it. all the time yeah. anyway, yeah. but it's nice. And it's always a fascinating discussion. Always yes. great to talk with you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Moss. Okay. And hopefully this weekend, both teams win in football. <laughs> <laughs> There's always hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on No Easy Answers in Bioethics. Please visit us online at bioethics.msu.edu for full episode transcripts and other resources related to this episode. A special thank you to HNET Humanities and Social Sciences Online for hosting this series. This episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics was produced and edited by Liz McDaniel in the Center for Ethics. Music is by Antony Ryakov via Free Music Archive.